The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, June 8th, 2016 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I don't know if you remember the name Jérôme Caviel. Actually, I think it's more pronounced almost like caviar. Caviel. He was a rogue trader. Mike, you've got to narrow it down. That doesn't tell me much. Okay, okay. He was the one who over-leveraged his positions and cost his bank billions. Again, that really can be almost anyone in the last 10 years. All right, all right. You know the London whale? Jaume Caviel was not the London whale. He was the Paris snail. Well, insofar as that Parisians like escargot. I like escargot. Anyway, here's the TV network France 24 recounting his misdeeds. Caviel was given a five-year sentence in October 2010, with two years suspended. That after being convicted for breach of trust, forgery and computer abuse, after amassing five billion euros in hidden trades. But that was not the headline of this report. That's not why this trader is being covered by the news now. It was like graph three of the report. Let me play you why Caviel was in the news. Société Générale fired disgraced former trader Jérôme Kerviel, quote, without real and serious cause. That, according to a ruling by a French labor court. The bank has been ordered to pay Kerviel €450,000 in damages. It includes a €300,000 bonus, which dates back to 2007, and €100,000 for unfair dismissal. That 2007 bonus, by the way, he was caught in January of 2008. The bulk of his bad trades, which cost the bank $5 billion, were in 2007. He got paid 300,000 euros for his work in 2007. Now, I know the U.S. system of justice is not perfect. In fact, it can be accurately described as nasty, punitive, and stacked against the poor. But decisions like this one and decisions like that Norwegian court that ruled that the mass murderer Anders Breivik's human rights were being violated – Because in his prison, his fairly spacious dorm room, complete with a TV and a workout area and a computer, because that was all too solitary for him. I don't know. It makes me want to say, USA, USA. Well, we make mistakes. We just tend not to make mistakes in this direction. But I guess that the Paris snail, I guess the joke is on that guy, and I'll tell you why. That 300,000 euro bonus, if that were to have been paid in 2007, it would be worth $438,000 then. But due to depreciation of the euro, it's now only worth $341,000. So suck it, snail. That'll teach you to cost your employer 4.9 billion euros, which today is actually only $5.7 billion. Back then, it was $7 billion. So really, that's only a misdemeanor, I think. On the show today, I spiel about Bernie Sanders' imminent departure from the race, and I say a lot of good things about him. Well, by a lot, I mean almost none. But first, Corey Pegues was one of the top-ranked African-Americans in the NYPD. He was a precinct commander. He rose to the rank of deputy inspector. And yet during his time, Pegues describes the NYPD as deeply racist. He has a book out now, and we talked about his career as a cop. (music) 
Corey Pegues' new memoir is called Once a Cop, The Streets, The Law, Two Worlds, One Man, NYPD Deputy Inspector, one of the highest ranking black men in the department. So it's hard to say exactly how high, but as Corey and I were talking, he put it this way, there are 36,000 or so people in the NYPD, and at one point he could tell 35,000 what to do. Now, the <laughs> thing about his story is it's in three parts in the book, and if you took any one of the parts, it would be a book on to itself. The rising in the ranks is the third part. Just becoming a cop and being a street cop is the second part. And the first part is his growing up where pretty frank about this, and this has gotten him in trouble lately, but he talks about his time slinging crack and being in a street gang and growing up uh, in the tough streets of Queens. Corey Pegues is here. Thank you for coming in, Corey. Thanks for having me. So I'll start at part two. What made you want to become a cop? That's the question everybody wants to know. Right? <laughs> because, you know, doesn't, I never By the way, really doesn't wanted. it say something about our society that they meet a guy like you and hear where you're from and they don't ask, why do you want to sell crack? Right. That seems <laughs> more obvious than why do you want to become a cop? Right. Well, you know, there was a cop assigned to my high school. And, like, all the girls used to be around him in the hallway. <laughs> I, like, you know, when you read in the book, like, I always had this affinity for women and stuff like that, even when I was a young boy. And um, all the girls used to like him. I was like, man, that's a job that I want to do. That was basically it. It wasn't like somebody told me, like, you want to be a cop? You know, we grew up playing cops and robbers, right. but um, I never envisioned I was going to be a police officer. Also, and this isn't in the book, but I wonder if there is something to the uniform, because when your gang was a gang, you described they had a pretty strict uniform, including sweatpants and shorts over the sweatpants. What was your what was your gang, right? That's It's not wrong to call them a gang. Right. What was your gang and what did you do? Well, you know, I used to sell drugs first. Like on the north side of Queens, it was just a, like a loosey-goosey team of like five of us that used to just sell. And then I graduated to working with um, the Supreme team, one of the not most notorious drug teams in the East Coast, if not America. And it was a strict regimen. It was almost like a Fortune 500 drug team. Mm -hmm. Like they had shifts. We had a dress code. Like we would wear sweatpants. A sweatsuit with Latigri shorts on top of it. And then we had on a lapel, like, monogram with Preem Team monogram. Like, can you believe all of this? Like, we was, yeah. <laughs> we didn't have a can of work. We was all walking around with this Preem Team outfit on. It was just too much money to turn your back on? There were no other yeah. ways to make money? There was no other ways for me at that time. I didn't have any other outlets. I couldn't even cut grass. Yeah. So it was sell yeah. drugs. That's what was around. Was being in the Supreme Team, in a way, more regimented than being a cop? I mean, you described there's a lot of looseness. A lot gets uh, looked the other way at if you're in the uh, NYPD. Oh, yeah. It was it was a tight reign. You know, Supreme was a boss, and then he had lieutenants. And under his lieutenants, they all had, like, enforcers. And then they had street workers like myself. So you write about how you were both lucky, well, unlucky, I mean, to be born into these circumstances, but lucky that there was a time where you could have shot someone, you didn't. There was a time when you did get busted with hundreds of vials of crack. And why Why do you think the officer didn't book you? Well, he didn't book me. They was getting paid off. That's when I found out that they was getting paid off. I ran to my boss' house. And I'm like, hey, you're not going to believe this. I just got caught with the re-up package. And he was like, 
who called you? The police. He was like, man, get back out there. You don't know we're paying them off. And I'm like, wow. Because remember, when you read the book, I was just in there to like get sneakers, look yeah. cute, have a little money in my pocket. It did seem that when the money got really big, you got a little nervous. Like it wasn't like, oh, just give me more. At a certain point, you were like, this is out of control. Right. Because I was just in there really just trying to eat and stay fly, look good. I didn't know all of this gunplay was going on. I didn't know like people was getting murdered. I mean, I knew people was getting murdered, but... When you're in it and living it, and we were so young, I didn't even realize that I was in a, a pot of danger. So at 16, you get busted on an assault charge. You go in front of the judge, and you come up with a plan that works. Right. Which was? Go to the military. <laughs> that was the exit plan. Yeah. There's no other options because, you know, you can't be hanging with all of these drug dealers and then, like, they're your friends. And then you stop selling drugs and you're still trying to hang with them. It doesn't work. You can't go back to that neighborhood in that environment. Exactly. You have to remove yourself from the environment. And so that was my plan to just remove myself right out of there. And And it worked. It worked, right? Not only did the judge buy it because you weren't lying. You went Mm -hmm. into the military. You liked the military. Mm -hmm. It seems like you excelled in the military. Mm -hmm. And from there, this this gets the answer to the first question. This is why you joined the NYPD. Yeah. Yeah. It was an obvious transition. So early on, what do you think the job was going to be like? (laughs) I really thought it was going to be like cops and robbers Mm -hmm. and SWAT. I remember sitting with my investigator and I said, you know, I want to be able to um, jump out of helicopters, climb buildings. It was like a big joke in the office. And he turned around. He said, hey, fellas, listen up. This kid wants to jump and rappel down buildings. <laughs> it was like they was just all laughing. I didn't know that. Police work is very mundane. It's like 90% of the time it's very boring. And so when the NYPD investigated your past, how forthcoming were you in the uh, forms? And you had to disclose the arrest was on the record. Mm-hmm. So to what detail did you go into and how thorough were they in vetting you? Oh, they was thorough and vetting me. I don't know how thorough because they didn't go to the old neighborhood and find out I was selling a bunch of drugs. Right. But and as you say, <laughs> since they never asked, did you ever sell drugs? You never said I sold drugs. Exactly. Yeah. It's yeah. not up to me. I mean, listen, if everybody exposed everything they did in their life, even if somebody lives in Beverly Hills, I'm pretty sure they probably did something wrong. Especially if you tell everything yeah. that you did, you probably wouldn't ever have a job. Nobody would be working. And remember, I'm trying to change my life. I got two kids. I'm married at 18 years old. I'm trying to raise this family, and I'm going to do everything I can to try to make sure that they eat legitimately. So to go in and say, look, investigator, let me tell you, I sold a bunch of crack for the Supreme team. That wouldn't have worked. It wouldn't have went over well. But then you tell the story in the book that you're on patrol with a cop. I think a cop you liked who was talking about when he busted the Supreme team. Yeah, a sergeant. A sergeant. sergeant. Yeah. Were you worried that – were you high enough up that he might have known you from back in the day? No, remember, I was a street hustler. Yeah. It was a bunch of hustlers like me that was doing hand-to-hand work. So they was going after the hierarchy of the Supreme Team. But I vividly remember that conversation. I'm sitting in the car. He was my training sergeant. Yeah. So he was training me on how to be a police officer. He was like, hey, Corey, where you from? I'm like, oh, Queens, you know, North Side, South Side. Oh, South Side, yo, you know Supreme Team and stuff. So now I'm like, oh, shit, this isn't good. And I said, oh, yeah, I know those. I heard the names before. Well, you know, I had my the hair on the back of my neck was standing up. Yeah, but he never he didn't make me out. So upon joining the NYPD, you grow up in this mostly black milieu in Queens. Then you go and join the army. 
definitely a more integrated, though not thoroughly integrated culture. NYPD, white-dominated culture, for sure. I mean, we're talking about when, 89, 90? Yeah, 90s, early 90s. Like, almost no racial consciousness. Like, they're not going to actively keep black people off the force. It's a legit civil service exam to get on the force. But, man, there's almost no outreach, right, to the black officers. So... How did you first start seeing racism? How subtle was it? How obvious was it? And how did you deal with it? I mean, I saw it. it was right off the bat. My first assignment, I write in a book. The first time I'm standing at roll call, they go, Johnson, Williams, Steinway Street, Ditmars Boulevard, Pegues, Queens Plaza North, 24th Street to 25th Street. So back in that time, Queens Plaza North is very nice over there now. It was only abandoned buildings. What stood out to me in that roll call was all the other cops, the old timers, was looking at me like, shit, what did this guy do to deserve that post? It was so cold. And then your first arrest is actually on the set of a Bronx tale, right? You were Lilo Broncado. The, the kid who— Cop killer. Yeah. This is amazing. So the guy who plays— Cologelo, I believe, is the character's name in the movie. It was later in The Sopranos, who years later goes on to murder a policeman. He got jumped and you arrested the guys who jumped him. Mm -hmm. It's a weird thing because you thought it was part of the movie. Yeah, I thought it was part of the movie. Okay, so arrest one goes well. Tell me about arrest two. Arrest two, a lockup. I believe it was for a stolen bicycle. Young black kid, have him on the ground, cuffed. You know, I was on a foot. So I needed a car to come to take him to the precinct. And these two white cops come. And so I'm filling out whatever paperwork I have to do. All of a sudden, they're kicking this guy on the ground and he's cuffed. Yeah. And I run over because now remember, I just came out of the academy. So I drunk the juice. I believe the job like this, you know, one, two, three, four. Mm-hmm. When you're a veteran, you're like you skip over one, two, three, four. You go to like seven and eight. So I'm like, by the numbers, why are you kicking this guy? He's cuffed. The sergeant came to the scene, and I told the sergeant, he was like, what you got, Pegues? I was like, I don't have anything. Those two guys, they over there beating this guy up, and he's handcuffed. Why are they doing that? And if they do that again, I'm going to report them to internal affairs. So pretty quickly, I let it be known that I wasn't going to be a part of none of that culture of, you know, the blue wall. Yeah. Couple questions about that moment. Did you even think about it? Did you even say, wow, I'm making a choice here, whether to go along and get along or whether to potentially be the guy who stands out? Or was it just so automatic that you would say, there's no way, I don't even want this arrest? It was automatic to me because I was the kid, you know, when I was growing up selling drugs, you know, the cops used to come, run through our pockets, sometimes hit us with the wooden nightstick. So I remember those times, you know? And then going through the academy knowing that this is the way it's supposed to be done. I just wanted to do the job the right way. So did it mark you, though, from that moment on and other incidents that you detail in the book? Did you get this reputation that held you back professionally? Well, it didn't hold me back because I rose to the top pretty quickly. Civil service, you take tests, you you pass them, they promote you. But it held me back as far as relationship building. You know, I was the outcast. No one wants to talk to me, you know. In a sense, it's good because when I'm around, they're not going to do anything because they know that Pegues is going to be the one that tells. Yeah. Did you get the impression that you were one of the really few good ones? Did you get the impression that there were a lot of people who were willing to be good cops, but for the few bad apples that people say? How big of a percent do the rotten apples have to be before you start calling the culture rotten? Well, the, the culture is right because a few bad apples, everyone wants to fit in. It's a very machismo job, you yeah. know. 
lot of testosterone going on in policing, and everyone wants to be liked. Do you think if the very aggressive stop and frisk, stop question and frisk, if the more hands-on, sometimes it's called broken windows, policing policies were in place when you were a young guy who was uh, selling drugs and running drugs, would you have been busted? Definitely. And you wouldn't be a cop then? Definitely. Yeah. Do you think it was good that the judge then told the NYPD that they had to stop, stop and frisk? Definitely. Yeah. Because listen, at what point... I mean, we brought the crime down. We kept stop, question, frisk, quality of life. But now, you know, you condition people's mind. People know when I was growing up as a teenager in the 80s, people was peeing outside. There was graffiti everywhere. Yes. They was standing on the corner selling joints. People's minds are conditioned now. They're not pissing outside. They actually, we did the poopa scooper law. Right. Leashes on door. We did all of that. Social norms. We changed the society. But you still want to do the same thing. Yeah, you still want the same number of arrests for public urination it, it, when it's it gone down it by don't 90%. Work. But see, when saying. you keep yeah. doing that, guess what you get? Eric Garner. Yeah. You get a chokehold on someone selling Lucy's. Lucy's. If you were a cop and you knew that Eric Garner was doing this, would you just have not have arrested him? Would you just tell him to go over there? So you're working that beat in Staten Island. You know that Eric Garner is technically violating the law. Well, how, how would you have reacted to him? I always tell people, I'm going to give the cops the benefit of the doubt. So if it's me, I would have said, look, big man, I'm not going to roll around with you. You got to go with us. Like, we got you. So I'm giving them a benefit. We got, but now there's two ways you can go. Either we can fight. Yep. Or you can come with me nicely. But you know, if I call the team, what's going to happen? Like, Eric already knew the drill. I would say, look, Eric, if you come with me, we're going to stop at McDonald's. I'll get you something to eat. If you don't have no open warrants, you're out of there in four hours. You can use the phone all day. A lot of police work is verbal judo. Mm-hmm. If you don't know how to talk to people, you're not going to be a good cop. Are cops or the fact that the DA, the same DA, works hand in glove with cops and then that DA is asked to prosecute cops, is that an inherent problem? Totally. And, you know, in policing in New York City, no cop wants to go on trial in Brooklyn or the Bronx. Yeah. They'll take their chances in Staten Island, Manhattan, and Queens. Right, because the Bronx, Brooklyn. They have problems. Cops. <laughs> yeah, it's mostly a black jury pool, and a lot of them, especially the minority. Bronx, minority, you know, uh-huh. Hispanic, yeah. but Staten Island, overwhelmingly white, pro cop. In fact, I think like a third of the borough are cops. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Staten yeah, Island. Yeah. Most of the cops I know live on Staten <laughs> Island. All right, are you more optimistic about where policing is going in any way? I am a little bit just because I think that the ideas and what's being talked about, things like community policing and body cams, I mean, there's tension, there's opposition, and yet it does seem that we're trending towards the right kind of reforms. And I also think the big thing is that where do police come from? They're just drawn from society. I think society's getting better on issues of race and better of mm-hmm. issues of even thinking about mass incarceration. So are you optimistic about policing the state of policing in general? Police are under a tremendous amount of pressure right now. So the only thing they can do is get better. So, And we know to, with technology, we know who the criminals are today. Like when I was a commander, I had the top 17, I can remember their names right now, top 17 violent offenders in my precinct. I yeah. know who they were. When I was a cop, we had maybe four or five wanted pictures up there. Nobody ever looked at them. You know, as I'm, I'm a commander, I knew these 17 people. I knew they they family. He got two kids. He was locked up four yeah. times. And now in Chicago, they've even ha- come up with an algorithm to predict who's going to get shot. 
Yeah. And they're right so often. And that's why policing has to change because we know who the criminals are. So why is it that Joe Blow keeps getting stopped and he's never been arrested? I can understand once in a while somebody might get caught up and get stopped. But for somebody to get stopped three, four times a month yeah. by three or four different people and they never committed a crime, they didn't do anything, there's something wrong with that picture. Corey Pegues, the new book is Once a Cop, The Streets, The Law, Two Worlds, One Man. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. So as you can imagine, given that he's an interesting guest, he wrote an interesting book. And we have a lot of interesting books and a lot of interesting authors on the gist. And lucky for you, we collected them in one place. And that place is slate.com slash gist books. This is part of the uh, initiative called Slate Picks. And Slate Picks are things that people associated, people who work at Slate, could be products, could be things on a, on a reporter's beat. But for me, some of the best interviews that we've done in the last year, so in 2016, some of the best interviews that we've done with authors. You could check out all 20 of them, and while you're there, poke around for some of the other Slate picks. Go to slate.com slash gist books. And now the spiel. My least favorite aspect of obituaries is how they run on the news pages and on news channels, but deviate to some extent with news because they are so cautious about speaking ill of the dead. And right now is the time that we are writing the obituary of the Bernie Sanders campaign. This was one of those long lingering illnesses that people really close to Sanders didn't want to admit. We see this a lot with famous people, but He might drop out of the race this week. He might drop out after the D.C. caucus on June 14th. But this move is expected to come. And during this time, as we are essentially crafting his obit, we're hearing about how Hillary Clinton can make peace with him, how she could give the Sanders campaign an honorable exit, how she could give him a role in her campaign, and how maybe he can wrest some concessions from her. And we're hearing that even though he lost, he pushed Hillary on issues, he fought the good fight, and that's, that's all fine. A lot of that's even true. If I were Hillary Clinton, I would play nice too. A lot of the commentators, however, whose job it is to tell you about politics and put this in context, are either actual Democratic Party surrogates or they see themselves as such or, like rational Americans, they're just scared as hell of a Trump presidency. So therefore, they're tending to treat Bernie Sanders with a lot of deference, with a lot of respect, and not speaking ill of some of his misdeeds along the way. Not me. I would like to take this opportunity to say that Bernie Sanders absolutely has his merits. I've talked about them before. I'll continue to do so now. But when it comes to his critiques of the campaign process, he has largely been a wildly inaccurate pain in the ass who for every decent point raised like superdelegates are elitist and too many state boards of elections are dysfunctional, for every good point, he put forth a barrage of nonsense that floated only on his own sense of righteousness and grievance. His constant claims of momentum when he was only winning states without black and brown people, his attacks on state and national party chairs when they had the gall to actually seat qualified delegates, his strength in the least democratic processes, i.e. caucuses, 
his eventual embrace of the institution of superdelegate as the only life raft to his salvation, all of this was hokum. All of this was nonsense. And here's a word that's certain to sully the snowy-haired senator. It was also hypocrisy because of who he was and what he stood for. Yeah, I understand that you have to make your argument as best you can wherever you find your argument. That's politics. But Bernie was not supposed to be about politics. Bernie raised $28. Bernie didn't have to release his speeches to Goldman Sachs because he never made those speeches. And Bernie could point out that speeches to Goldman Sachs would hurt Hillary in a fight against Trump because she couldn't raise certain issues because she was dragged down by those speeches. Well, what about the fact that you never released your taxes, Bernie? Never. Jane's doing them. They won't be interesting. Believe me. There's someone else who says believe me a lot, too. I don't believe Trump. I do believe you on these issues. I don't think there's anything major in your taxes, but not releasing them and then attacking Clinton because this makes her an imperfect critic of Trump. Why are you so above it? How is it anything but arrogance? Oh, sorry. Don't want to slow down your crusade. And what about empirical evidence? You know, Trump's economic plans are a disaster. And the reason I know this is I read all the economists who've looked at them. I mean, all the economists. Maybe there's one or two guys who are really biased who disagree. But almost every economist says this will blow a hole in the deficit. This won't work out. This will cripple us. It's nearly unanimous. And you know what? Those exact same things can be said of your economic plans, Bernie. He had one. He had one economist who, who he would always cite as saying, my projections for growth align with this economist. And that economist isn't even voting for Bernie Sanders. He's a Hillary Clinton backer. If I, as I've done, call out global warming denialists, I rest on empirical evidence. If I call out anti-vaxxers, it's because of empirical evidence. If I call evolution deniers liars, it's because of empirical evidence. A lot of these things are about projections, but when the overwhelming majority, the almost unanimous majority of the most learned people say, your stuff doesn't work out, I believe it. And I believe it when it comes to your economic plans, Bernie. Oh, but Bernie was leading a revolution. Bernie was speaking deeper truths. No, he wasn't. He was saying things he hoped were true and then ignoring the counter evidence. His economic plans would have added $20 trillion to the deficit. One counter argument that I heard a lot from his supporters are, oh, deficits don't matter. It's only Republicans. It's only conservatives who go on and on about deficits. Deficits do matter. Okay. I wouldn't say don't spend anything for fear of adding to the deficit, especially during a recession. That makes sense. I'm going to acknowledge that interest rates are extremely low, but we're $13 trillion in debt now. We spend 6% of our entire budget servicing the debt. Yeah, interest rates are low, but it's still almost $250 billion. Just paying interest on the money we owe takes up more spending than food stamps, the Federal Department of Education, and the entire State Department combined. Look, I am not here to argue this one issue over and over. I am just saying that is this huge, glaring flaw, for me an insurmountable flaw in backing Sanders, and when you would point it out in any way, his campaign or his supporters would just essentially say, how dare you? But oh, oh. Bernie Sanders spoke to our frustration. Bernie Sanders tapped into our feelings of resentment. 
Great. Pets.com tapped into our feelings that cheap dog food over the internet would be convenient. But guess what? There was never a real plan for sustainable cheap dog food over the internet. Heavy metal bands and the insane clown posse tap into our feelings of outrage. It doesn't mean that Violent J has a good plan to get a bill through Congress. It's easy to tap into outrage when you don't have a plan. It's easy to speak to people's ideals when you're not dealing with the real solutions to them. I think Bernie Sanders has many virtues and is a person of integrity, but I am glad he's gone. I am glad that today will be the one day after a big election day, a so-called Super Tuesday, Tuesday, when we don't have to give serious time to his disingenuous spin, right? Like how he'd be saying, oh, a big state like California doesn't count or New Jersey isn't the real test. Look at Montana. Look at the superdelegates. Rigged system. Sorry if I'm being churlish. Sorry if it's a cruel twist of the knife. And I will give him credit where credit is due. But now to quote another prominent politician from history, I am quite content in saying I come to bury Bernie, not to praise him. And that's it for today's show. If Mary Wilson had disclosed on her application to be just producer that she was once a devoted listener to the Tom Likas show, she would never have been hired. But we never asked. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, failed to disclose during the vetting process that he thought Hang Up and Listen was the parenting show and Mom and Dad are Fighting was the sports show. But we never asked, so he gets to keep the job. Andy Bowers is chief content officer of the Panoply Network. We also think of him as the chief content gentleman of the Panoply Network. But there was a time when he was best known as Angry Andrew, irate caller to the Alex Jones radio program InfoWars, if we'd only known. The gist. I said I'd call it the gist, and yet I often don't boil things down to their nub, do I? Rather quite the opposite. No one asked. And thanks for listening.